1: We're going to talk today about an issue that I'm actually really keen to talk about. Growing up, there was the notion that you never buy on a corner block, and why? Why not? I don't know, but I think for me, I learned not to ever buy on a corner block because it's just more bloody lawn to mow, and that stuck with me. And there's a question today that we're going to answer from the Facebook group about whether we should buy a house on a corner block, so I'm really excited to get into this remember this month we are talking about sort your career out and make more money. It is our newest book to the My Millennial Stable, Sort Your Career Out and Make More Money by myself, Glenn James and Shirley Johnson. There's a link in the show notes. It's going to be sent out to you anytime from now. First of February comes out, but a lot of these retailers, they just send them out as soon as they get the stock. I've received my stock. We are good to go. I'm Glenn James. You're listening to My Millennial Money. John Pidgeon, My Millennial Property Podcast. Welcome back to The Tuesday Show. Question here from Georgina Roy in the Facebook group. And if you do want to have a look at all the comments that people wrote, you can jump in the My Millennial Money Facebook group, search hashtag property or hashtag first home buyer, you'll see this question. What do we think of buying a house on a corner? Hi, folks. Myself and my partner are looking for a home. I've done a lot of research, but the process still feels overwhelming. We're looking at an area that is slightly over our price range which means we're looking at smaller houses, which are basic slash worse house on a nice street. Corner houses tend to be cheaper. Are they a big no-no? Even if it's a quiet street? Experiences anyone? Thanks so much. So, John, when we are looking at corner blocks and 101, can you talk us through from your wisdom, uh, both from a first home buyer to live in and from an investment property, uh, whether to buy a place on a corner block because as I said at the top of the episode like for me it was always like it's just more to mow <laughs> yeah. and, and I think that was my kind of you know scorned me yeah, all you know?
2: yeah
1: yeah, yeah. so what do we think about corner blocks
2: it's a good good question I think I did have a, a quick response in that Facebook group on that particular question but I'll, I'll expand on that as an investor I quite like them if they've got the ability to subdivide because you can put two dwellings on it and you've got two separate um, driveways you've you basically feel as though you've got your own house which which you have um, but you don't have to deal with the other side um, so that that's definitely a positive however as an owner Oc, it's really a case of how busy the roads are and I mean you've, you're assessing how busy the roads are anyway but it may be on a busy street you when you've On a corner, you've got lights coming into your potential room, that front room um, as they turn at night, depending on what room that is as to how bad that is, Um, depending on the size of the block as to how much lawn you have to mow in your case. So I think um, the setbacks on a corner are always greater. So you you don't actually capture the whole block size essentially because the setback will come in one or two metres and you'll get carved off the corner.
1: So, can you just explain that setback and give us maybe a practical example of what that might mean in real square meterage?
2: Yeah, so the square meterage is always different, but you may, when you go and walk the dog next, you can look at a corner block and often instead of it going straight, It'll, it'll have been cut off. So you'll, there'll be a portion of it that'll be missing that's now council ground and not the owner's ground, so to speak. So that might be 10 square, might be 20 square, depending on how busy the road is. Um, and it just allows for you not being able to build close to that corner because there's a bit more action going
1: on signs and everything else. So yeah, you've got to take that into account. So John, that whole corner block setback thing, that's probably real important for people to understand if they are buying a new block of land in an estate, because the sales brochure might say this block here, at 630 square meters, but the actual usable space of the block might be 590. Uh, no,
2: what they generally do is they'll they'll have that corner block advertised at the Meterage that they have access to. So that's already been factored in. Uh, but what really? generally happens is that access or, or that size is bigger than the standard blocks next to it that aren't corner blocks. So you're sort of, it's not too bad because you've you've got a bit more land space anyway.
1: So if you're looking at the diagram of the Greenfield estate or the Greenfield, yeah. the corner blocks will look bigger. Yes. But it's because they are bigger because you can't use all of the space. That's right. And,
2: and the, right. the downside of that is the garden will often wrap around. So you don't, whilst you get space, you don't always get practical usable space. So yeah, you've got to factor that in. So buying an existing house already on a corner, you can see what the usable space might look like and how that's practical for you and your family.
1: And in terms of the existing purchase, if you're going to live in it, can there be some dickery with the square meterage? Like can they advertise the full square meterage even though you can't use it all or do you No, if you're buying something existing it's it's already been factored
2: in it'll be on the title and yeah you'll know the meterage but you'll just see that it's been sawn off if you want to use that word um so yeah but risk profile is is another part of that is like well are we happy living on a on a busy road do we do we want to be in a quiet street um do we want to be on a corner where Cars are turning into like there's a, a whole range of things to factor in, but understanding for Georgina that she's basically saying, Well, I can afford to buy in this suburb, but it's going to be an extremely small block or it's going to be a corner block, which she, she's seeing as a cheaper alternative because they're, they're not worth as much. The alternative is going out a suburb or two to find a block that's more suitable for her. Now, mm. as an investor, I'm probably not too fussed about whether it... I'm more fussed about the location more so than um, than the type of block in, in some ways. Um, but for an owner-rock that wants to maybe bring up a family or be comfortable in their own home, she may be better off just going out a, a suburb or two and finding a more regular block.
1: All corners aren't equal because I'm just looking here, for example. So for those, if you want to pull up your um, Google Maps or whatever where I am at Merriweather Heights, you'll see the suburb. There's Scenic Drive or Scenic Highway, and then there's a main road that goes through uh, Merriweather Heights called Sun Hill, right? Now, if you're on one of those corners of Sun Hill, that's going to be a busier corner than one of the streets that aren't off a main thoroughfare. So, I think you're onto that with that volume of traffic and lights because you know, the little pocket that I'm in, one of the nearby corners, it's not off a thoroughfare. So I would deal with that corner. Yeah. But I think what you need to work out, I, I kind of think with this whole corner block thing, if you are going to live there and it if the shoe fits, like, can you optimize that corner block? Because one side, there might not be, you know, obviously any driveways, one side, if you had a caravan or a boat, you might be able to use that bit of um, street parking to your advantage. Yes, absolutely. Or um, like when I tried to buy that block of land um, for those on the Central Coast, Newcastle, the new subdivision at Crangan uh, Bay or Crangan Bay or whatever it's called, I was I did put my name down for a couple of the corner blocks because I know that I could have done a shed at the back to reverse the boat into. So I think with the whole corner block thing, you need to make sure it's going to work for you. But for Georgina... I'm not settling, quote unquote, on a corner block just because it's the cheapest one. If it's a busy, tight street and it's a thoroughfare, unless, and this is what we kind of go into the strategy stuff, John, it is a decent sized block and it's a stepping stone to the, you know, I'll always keep this block and it's my first home. Yes, absolutely. But longer term, I'll set up the mortgage so there's an offset account. I'll only pay P&I on it. I won't pay any extra down because one day I'm going to move out of this corner block and put a granny flat at the back and do a dual lock.
2: Yeah, totally. And um, you, you raise a good point with the, with the boat or the caravan or, or whatever it might be. You've just got access that normal blocks may not have. And depending on how busy the, the suburb or the city is, uh, that can make a big difference. But traditionally busy roads, and
1: I mean real busy roads, uh, they're they're
2: a no-go for me anyway.
1: Mm, Yeah. And then there is that practical factor of extra lawn. You've got a whole frontage of potential extra lawn and mowing. Bit of upkeep. Yeah. Yeah. So, look, good luck, uh, Georgina. uh, Any other comments there? You know, that whole worst house on nice street thing, like if it's your first home, John, and you don't mind the suburb, you just jump in, don't you? And not everyone's first home can be the brand new bloody dream home. No, you know what I mean? Like That's right. And she's alluding
2: to the fact, I, I think, that it is a quiet street. So, yeah, maybe it is a, a
1: good option for her. Just let me... Uh, one second, John. I'm just going to bring up the post because I'll read some experiences that people have said. Oh, Demi said, as a police analyst, I can verify that corner blocks are statistically more likely to be broken into... Um, due to having multiple access points. That's a good point. It is. Uh, Katrina, be prepared to have a lot of grass to maintain, people cutting the edge and walking close to your house, random people parking on your lawn. Uh, Nicole, flip side. I loved... Oh, no, sorry. It might not be the flip side. (laughs) It was a typo. I lived on corner blocks my whole life. Mum's house, dad's after they separated. Even my grand's house where I would visit is on a corner. When we were looking at buying land, there were four blocks remaining in our lease, all corners, I warned then boyfriend, now husband, there's more mowing. He's fine with it. If you're looking at side access, check the slope of the block. We have a retained wall inside the property, uh, blah, blah, blah. You can jump in and read some of these, but I'll just see if there's... Uh, Nat said, I'm on a corner block also like 900 square meters, so mowing can be a total pain uh, because we have two sets of nature strips. The garage on ours is on the corner. So, I think that helps with traffic noise. Charlotte said, we're on a T intersection, but our streets are very quiet, so no issues. And that's kind of like that, what I was saying, all uh, corners are different. Um, Ray said, I have a couple of corner houses and one that goes street to street. Both corner block land values are always higher than any of the surrounding blocks. And is that because when they do desktop vowels, John, it is more of a square meter thing and you might yep. be actually picking up that little bonus. They're
2: looking at the land size and the fact that it's got three bedrooms or four bedrooms and they're comparing it to every, mm. everything else in that area. It's got the same. Difference is mm. aesthetically. Might not be in as great a position, but yeah,
1: the old RP data doesn't really know that. Yeah, awesome. Well, I think we've uh, outdone our stay on the corner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that's uh, of help. And just search the post in the group, everyone, if you want to have a read of everyone's comments. Do you want to read Emily's question there, John?
2: Emily B. uh, Hello. Does anyone know if mortgage lenders generally look at three or six months worth of bank statements? My spending was pretty scrappy up until recently. (laughs) Hoping it's... (laughs) That was John reading the (laughs) hee-hee.
1: Hee-hee. (laughs) Ha-ha. Hoping it's three. Yeah, look, you know, the golden rule with um, saving for your first home or your first investment property or anything that the lenders want to look at they want, number one, they call it gen savings or you know, genuine savings. And basically, they want to see that you've had three months of genuine savings. Now, whether that is, here's 30 grand sitting in your bank for three months and we can prove it, or you've worked up to your savings amount and the minimum thresholds are within that genuine three months. So, they want to see that habits and behaviors are there. In terms of the bank statements, look, I'm not a mortgage broker but I did ask a mortgage broker about this. They said 3 months in terms of look back. But what you need to realize is they're not really going to go into the weeds of your bank statements unless something is flagged with your we'll call it a credit profile. So the hardline things that banks and lenders look like is deposit level or equity or parental guarantee all that stuff. So we want to make sure that the deposit is there. The second thing they want to make sure is that it can be serviced. Now, we won't go into credit scores and all that now, but one of the reasons why the credit scores don't matter that much is because if your income is solid and there's a whopping big deposit and there's plenty of buffer space and you're not in any default, the bank will make a judgment call. I think when they're going to look at your day-to-day transactions, like John Pigeon, Woolworths, John Pigeon, dry needling. How was that yesterday, by the way? Yeah, it was painful. Yeah, um, John Pigeon. This it only gets a problem, and maybe, and I would say this. I'd actually, I'd probably say it would happen in the background if they do need to have a look and go a bit deeper. If they see trends of cash withdrawals at RSL Club ATMs if they see buy now, pay later names coming up and coming up and coming up, if they see uh, gambling apps and all that stuff coming up in your statements. Now, I think there's a higher chance that they're going to get in the weeds and looking at all that stuff. If your LVR is high, if your servicing is right on the line, Um, but uh, in direct answer to your question, Emily, three months is fine. And if in doubt, just reach out Uh, sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help and we can introduce you to a mortgage broker who specializes in first home buyers who can actually walk you through this thing. John, I've said a lot there with authority, like I am a mortgage broker, but just from your experience in the mortgage and property world, anything else you want to add there?
2: That sounded pretty sophisticated to me. Um, You're right about the LVR. So if you are putting in a lower deposit, they will ask more questions. And, and the lenders, mortgage insurers like a Genworth or someone like that will definitely be fine-tooth combing it as well. So yeah, that's where they're going to d- dig a bit deeper. Um, I have heard of some lenders just looking at three months now instead of six. So that's, that's cool. It really does depend... Uh, on lenders as to what their policies are and procedures. But if they if they smell her out, then they go fishing a little bit more is probably the assessment there. So yeah, I think worst case scenario, be prepared to have six months up your sleeve and ready to go, put it in a folder, have all your pay slips, have everything there ready so that it doesn't become such a, an ordeal for you because so many people say to us, oh, it's just such an ordeal getting an application through. Well, hang on a minute, you're
1: lending 500000 thousand dollars. It's not just going to be buying a pair of shoes. And I will say, John, like this is the total example of someone like Emily who, you know, four months ago, she's had to come to, you know, that saying, come to Jesus moment. She's had to come to Glennie moment four months ago. <laughs> she, she started listening to the podcast. She's getting everything. She's got the Glenn James spending plan. She's saving money. She's, you know, because often with our personal finance, if we start to really pay attention to it, we get better systems, we get better management. We then go, hang on, this buy now, pay later, it's not good for me. Hang on, this sports bet app is not good for me. And we know that, you know, this sports bet stuff and all these apps, guys, like, and particularly, I want to single out some of the young men, like, you've got to keep away from that. Like, I I know that they heavily target young men for sports bet apps and gambling. And we know it's a fact that most buy now, pay later, transactions and targets are for young women and clothes. Like That's just fact. Sure, there's outliers to everything. But just on this gambling stuff, guys, I've just booked in an interview with our psychologist, Jono. He's been on the show before. We're going to do another chat around this gambling stuff because this will erode your life and your savings. So, all that to say, once you get on track and you've had to come to Glennie moment and you reach out and say, hey, Glenn, I want to speak to a mortgage broker. Once you speak to the mortgage broker they can have a chat with you. And if you say, hey, five months ago, it was wild. It was the wild west. And some of those things on my bank statement, I'm not proud of, and it probably might turn a bank off. Now, that mortgage broker, they'll categorically know that, all right, there's a bank or lender here. We'll only need to send three months in. They're not even going to ask for six or four or five. So, this is one of the things, not only like income, LVR, occupation, deposit amount, complexity. This is just another thing that a good mortgage broker will be able to make easy for you. So we are absolutely pro-mortgage broker at My Millennial Money.
2: Yeah. And a lot of uh, the good mortgage brokers will have online facilities where you can just simply upload it to that system. So it's, it's pretty straightforward now. You don't have to go and print them off and scan them and email and those sort of things. So it's, it's pretty straightforward now.
1: No, the broker I use, yeah, I just logged in and you put the date range and it logs into your internet banking and harvests the- um, Money. The transactions. (laughs) So it's, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, good on you, Emily. John. Glenn. Craig, he's about your age. What's going on with Craig? Craig's 32
2: and married with two adult children. No, he's not. He's 46, married, two adult children. We've invested in super and we'll be fine once we turn 60. In 12 months, we'll be- in our PPR, PPOR, principal place of residence, one point two mil no mortgage, and have an investment property one point two mil with four hundred k of equity. We earn one hundred and twenty five and one hundred and fifteen thousand each, and would like to retire earlier than sixty. How do we go about preparing for this?
1: Okay, so I've just worked out there, John. Obviously, in a year's time, they won't own any. They won't owe any money on the house. Amazing. Well done. That's, you know. I just want to pause there and say, they're on good money, 125 and 115 at 45, 46 years old. Like they haven't had incomes of 400 grand and writing in and saying, we're about to own our home. They've clearly worked hard to be, you know, 46, 47 and have a house paid off. Um, So just a world, are you clapping? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But they've got an investment property that has debt of $800,000. And we'll assume they've got healthy super balances um, as well. Just on like, what are you saying to someone like Craig where they wanna retire earlier than 60? Like, what are you saying? So
2: there's a few things to this, isn't it? First of all, how much do we wanna retire on and and at what age? So if it's earlier than 60, is it 55 or let's say 56 for our maths, we've got 10 years. Uh, At that stage, i look at that and say, right, if it's 56, average male, female in Australia, if you keep yourself fit and healthy, you're going to live to at least 85, 86. So there's 30 years that you need to fund for if you're not working. Now, you might be doing some part-time stuff, but working out what that is. Um, And if it's 100K a year, that's three mil we need. If it's 50K, it's 1.5. So you can reverse engineer it that way. Not sure what the super balances are, um, but we know that... If we sold down on this property, I don't know if that's usable equity in the investment property space or not, but 1.2 mil with 400K of equity, uh, there's, a, there's at least a 600K mortgage there anyway.
1: Um, yeah, we'll say 800 for the sake of yep. so conservativeness.
2: That's still got a bit to go. So I'm – look, being the, the property nerd and Craig sounds like he's on the similar page, There's equity there in that investment property to go again with something else. There's obviously some diversification into um, shares and super. If we're closer to retirement, we need to put a focus on super, no doubt about that. Um, the, The thing I took away from this when I saw that he's 46 with two adult children he's had kids reasonably early. So it's mm. it's probably fair to say it's been a, a bit of a grind in the early days when, when everyone else is out enjoying themselves, they're building a family and building some assets. So that's outstanding by Craig, um, just off the bat, by the way. Mm. Yeah. What are you saying?
1: Look, this is a wonderful case study. Uh, so the actual question is, how do we go about preparing for this? Well- I'll be biased and say, I would plug into a good financial advisor and get some type of pathway or strategy that you can execute over the next 10 years. I'm just having a reread here. Would like to retire earlier than 60. So, number one, a good advisor will sit down and have some sessions with you and really nut out like, you know, retire earlier than 60. So, if you're 55 does that mean it's tools down? We're not doing any type of work. We are literally holidaying, beaching, there might be grandkids involved. We're absolutely just lifestyling, full-time lifestyling. From the work that I've done on the Retire Right podcast, and we're, we're turning that up this year, go and have a subscribe, but he's really targeted over age 55s. And even from, you know, my own anecdotal, I guess, vibes from people like my old man, I was talking to him last week. He's just retired and I'll try and do an episode with him and mum. But he said to me at lunch the other day, John, like he's 68. He said, I'm bored. Like he got a call and they're like, oh, can you do some more work? Because he was a contractor. He said, oh, no, I've sold all my gear, you know, retired. But if you've got any cash, I can come and help out. Like, because I'm only doing because I'm bored. He's like, "I've he does clay target shooting, once a week he does uh he said he's joining the local snooker club. Yeah. I mean you can't do clay targets and snooker 8 hours a day every day generally. No, like no. And, and- so he's bored. Um they you know and this is why you know there's an episode on retire right called change before you have to or something like that. So it is about implementing some lifestyle stuff and all that into your life. And and we're not even talking about money here. Like it's just having that conversation about if we flick the switch right now and you were 55 right now which is before 60 and you wanted to retire early if we did that right now this second what does that look like because it might be that we both just work one or two days a week in something that might be a bit of a an interest a hobby it might be some volunteering it might not be work like i'm not saying you can't just retire and not do anything last week, John, I sold my uh, old boat engine and this guy, Steve, he came and picked it up and you know, it's a big old V8 and Steve said he's 67 and he goes, yeah, I'm retired. I've been retired for, you know, five years or so. I said, oh, sounds like you're too busy to be retired, like running around. He goes, yeah, we got the bloody, I'm an old Marine mechanic and i got boats and we've got a bit of a hobby farm and, you know, he's got five acres. And so, he's got that thing where he's too busy to work mm. and the money's obviously not a problem That's and he's got yeah, his really little sure. hobby. So it's just that, yeah. And we'll assume that Craig's nailed that. Right. But what I want to do is get Craig to understand one, what does the the home look like? The PPOR. Are you happy to stay in that for the next 10 years, next five years? You know, is it, is there a move? Do you want a downsize? Do you want a sideways size? or whatever that is, like, you've got that good asset there that's paid off. So, we know money and a home is not your problem. So, we want to just understand what does the next 10 years look like for the home. And I just want to say out loud as well, like, retiring doesn't mean you all should downsize. It's just a consideration where a lot of people find themselves in a five-bedroom house, four-bedroom house, and they just don't need it. So, if you love your house and you own it, stay there. Yeah. Yeah.
2: He's got two adult children. They maybe having kids soon. And all of a sudden we've got sleepovers and things going on. So yeah, it may actually be Yeah, warranted. who knows?
1: It's just a consideration. Then what I want to look at is just around your attitude to debt. Uh, we know you don't have any um, non-deductible debt. You've got the investment property. I would probably be doing a bit of a, you know, you said, John, do we go again? I'm probably at, at some point, doing a bit of a property review of that portfolio. And by portfolio, it might just be one property, which it sounds like it is. And let's just see if that property is performing or whether we need to, you know, 1.2 million property, do we need to sell that and buy two other stronger performers rather than one possibly dog? Not sure. Um, Because, you know, in terms of borrowing and finance and all that, the only way to do it is to have a job. (laughs) Like it's going to be hard to borrow money if you are not working. Uh, so I would be reviewing that property and even chatting with John and you know going okay well we don't really have an appetite for more than 800k of investment debt is it worth flicking this and buying two other properties or three and you know just really maximising that level of debt and bang for our buck with our assets I then want you to start to when you see your advisor just double check your superannuation uh, make sure that it's all in good order, you're invested in the right fund, right profile. I want you to also do a review on your personal life insurance. You know, 1.2 million, no mortgage, there's a bit of meat in the property, might have some super, there might not be any need for death cover anymore. uh, But certainly we want to consider uh, income insurance still to get us to that retirement age. Because 46, it's still young people like, and this is just like that, John did that for you. Thank you. Uh, So that's what I'm looking at as well. But in terms of strategy, and I think one thing that you could start to do, Craig, before you see a financial advisor, before you even see John and do a property review or anything like that, and some housekeeping, make sure that the mortgage on the property is competitive. I've just put into, I use this website called taxcalc.com.au, It's just a re- really fast, easy website. I've just put taxable income, 120 grand, which is a bit of an average. Like one earns one twenty-five, one earns one fifteen. The after-tax income eighty-eight thousand a year, right? So eighty-eight thousand divided by fifty-two, it's just under seventeen hundred. Oh, it's, it's on the screen here. It's just under seventeen hundred dollars per week. My encouragement, if I want to get to this bullet point of how do we go about preparing for this, I want you to only live, if possible, off one person's salary. Or one and a half person salary. The rest of it, and this is where you'll need to sit down with an advisor, the rest of it needs to be put to work, albeit, and this is the crazy thing, John put to work as in, do we pay down the investment property debt? Do we add more to super? And do we add more or some to a portfolio out of super? So when we get to age 55 or 50 or whatever that age is, probably 55, we'll call it, 10 years, nine years. There is a kitty of money to start drawing down to supplement our income with the property income before we can access the superannuation income. So that's what I'm probably, from a personal finance looking in here, can we, as two people, live? And I think they can, given that they've just smashed so much um, and had so many goals. I want you to really see can you both live off two grand a week net after tax? And then the rest of the rest of it will um, will enable you to put that money to work for future you. And then what you might do is somehow, and this is it: like you're 46 years old, you've got no financial problems that we can see here, and can you do it? Get into the habit now, where you both spend 10 grand on a decent overseas holiday each year, or. Take the kids and do an, like, I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing. These are the considerations as a financial advisor because you'll absolutely be a winner if you can live off two grand a week, $1,500 a week now, but also have an amount, you know, 10 grand a year that we use on us, on experiences above the day on day living expenses. Because the problem is, like, even speaking freely for my parents. They're struggling to, and it's a generational thing. But they've got money's not their problem. They're retired. Um, They wouldn't mind me saying this, but I think there is a struggle there to actually spend money on them. Um, So we need to start to change before we have to. And if you can get into the mindset now, Craig, of deaccumulation, quote unquote, because as someone who in their sixties who retires after working for forty years, you've spent forty years going, I need to save for retirement, save for retirement, save for retirement flicking that switch the day after you retire, you can't just go, oh, okay, I can now spend money and enjoy life because I've built up this nest egg Mm. and the money will last. And the advisors, you know, mum and dad go to an advisor and they've projected out, hey, your money's not going to be a problem forever. Spend another family member. They went to the same advisor. They, at their review, they said, please trust us. If you need to spend 30 grand a year on holidays, you've got the money. It's not a problem. Yeah, and that's
2: the thing. Like Craig in his opening said, we've invested in super and we'll be fine once
1: we turn 60. So, exactly, he's He's, already there. So, money's not the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And so, that's why I want to. And this is like, we've probably talked for for 10 minutes or more. Well, you have. About Uh, this situation. Yeah, sorry, guys. For like literally one, two, three and a half lines on a page. Mm -hmm all the details that need to be addressed and the complexities. And we don't even have any of the details of the weeds. Uh, sort of making So this is the value of going to a good financial advisor. Mm. But if you don't want to do that yet or whatever, at least start to live on that $1,500 a week take home. And that is your target for the next whatever. And then when you retire, because once you set up kind of retirement pensions and whatnot, you basically spit out enough each week to live on and then when you want the annual big expense, you just go and get the extra money from the assets that, you know, might be in super in, you know, different cash pot or whatever. So, well, I, I am. I do apologize for that. That was a mouthful from me. Did you want to add anything else to Craig's situation there?
2: Nah, look, I've gave my opening statement some, uh, yeah,
1: well done, Craig. And Craig, yeah, just reach out to us, Craig, if you want to come and have a chat on the podcast, because it'll be cool to just talk with you about that. All right, we are back. We're looking at the community segment. Each week, we bring you your responses from posts in the Facebook group. This segment is brought to you by SkyWealth, sky.com.au forward slash MMM. Get your income insurance, get your life protected. We asked, you need a holiday when? You know you need a holiday when, Caitlin Wood says.
2: You're counting the amount of workdays between now and Christmas. I've got a brother-in-law that does that.
1: Really? Reach out, Lyle. Okay, just seriously though, like, is that you need a holiday or you don't like going to work because you hate your job? No,
2: full transparency, he actually enjoys work, but he just loves his holidays. So, yeah, just schedules them and this is, uh,
1: yeah, can't wait till they come around. Catherine Mack, regular contributor, thanks for being part of the group and the podcast. She knows she needs a holiday when you heated up a cup of milk in the microwave to make a coffee, but there was no milk, just a cup. (laughs) Fun fact,
2: we don't own a microwave.
1: I know. You guys are just so 2023. 2023.
2: Kim Pearson, I said to a parent whose kid was running around with lots of enthusiasm, I wish I had as much energy as your kid on a Friday afternoon to which the parent reminded me that it was a Monday.
1: Ooh. And actually, Rach made a note here. Some of these are funny. Some are serious. Um, <laughs> Grace said here, this might be erring on the serious. Your sick leave balance is zero and you keep analysing your pay slips to see if you can afford to take a sickie without pay. Yeah, you might need a holiday grace.
2: Hannah Mack, you're Googling how much money do you need to retire? Be one of the most common Googled.
1: Yeah. I would have thought. Shane Hannett, payroll is tapping on the shoulder because you have too much leave and you are a liability. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, And we'll end with Beck Meredith, you pour the beans in the water compartment of your coffee machine (laughs) actually the other day because I've got one of those grinders like the smart grinders or whatever I ground my beans and then I think I was on the phone and then I poured the grind the ground beans into the grinder again (laughs) I was like gosh Uh, oh man Well, that's all from the community segment of the week. Remember, this segment is brought to you by Sky. You told us in the 2022 annual census that the fifth biggest issue that you want to solve in the next 12 months is getting your life and your income insurance sorted. So, you can head to sky.com.au forward slash MMM, book in a five-minute chat with the team, no cost to have a chat, and see how easy it is to get your insurance sorted this year.
2: Scott Paget, what is your approach to retiring debt, whether it be from an investment property or borrowings for shares?
1: So, okay, John, like when you've got clients who maybe buy investment properties with debt, like debt reduction, you know, we talked last week's episode that, you know, the the strategy is that you use is interest only uh, for investment property debt where I use principal and interest for my investment properties, like at what point do you retire the debt on those properties? Oh, look, I
2: think when you can afford to and, and when it makes most sense. So if you've got your principal place of uh, residence debt covered, then your next focus is your, is your other debts to the point where you're into a cash flow positive position in each of those assets. And the the goal is to get to retirement, ideally holding assets and them giving you a nice positive cash flow amount for you to live off over and above super, shares, whatever else may be. So the amount that you have depends on probably two things. One is your risk profile and how comfortable you are carrying debt into retirement when you're actually not earning an income from physical trading my time for money. And two is how much do you need to live off in retirement. And that's where you can reverse engineer and say right I'm retiring or looking to in 15 years and I actually did this with a client this morning. Got out our analyzer calculator and worked out the fir- the next 20 years for him on three properties this is what it might look like and this is what the cash flow of that portfolio will be in 20 years time taking into account the uh, the norms or the medians of, of those properties.
1: So with debt, one good thing about debt for the long term is inflation. And if you took the interest only mortgage on your investment property debt as a strategy, over the next 10, 15, 20 years, we know when you buy the property and you might have, you know, 10 years ago, $500,000 property, you put $400,000 into it. 10 years later, that $400,000 worth of debt, you might not have paid any off only interest. But because of inflation and the time that's passed, that $400,000, you know, it's not worth as much because that property might be worth be now seven or 800000 and it just means that the debt isn't as significant as the asset value. So, inflation has helped pay that off because of the value of money over time.
2: Yeah. And your loan to value ratio organically goes down, reduces each year, even though mm. you're not paying it off. And that's the great thing about it, isn't it?
1: Yeah, but it goes back to that retiring debt. Like it's the same discussion that we had last week that for whatever reason, I'm happy to pay down the principal repayments on my mortgages on the investment properties because I actually want to pay down the debt and have the debt out of my life as fast as possible. Yeah. Now, just in terms of, you know, if you borrowed for shares, I actually think when the time what is my approach to retire debt well in my life because i'm still in accumulation type mode i haven't really personally had to retire any debt but if we go to and i will talk about shares well i'll do a bit i'll do that now like if you have a strategy to borrow money to buy shares i don't actually think the scenario is different whether it's shares or property now that we can get into some discussion about Um, you know, you can sell half a share portfolio, but you can't sell half a property. But if we go back to Craig's situation, he's got 800 grand worth of debt on an investment property. And if we said, you know, what's Craig's approach to retiring debt? From a clinical point of view, I would imagine if I was the financial advisor, if the client had that debt on that property, and they did move into retirement, and, you know, that debt, it, it, and this is where it could be discussion, John. Now that the mortgage is paid off for Craig, maybe we move the if there's no appetite for further debt, maybe we move the debt to principal and interest repayments anyway, or if it's part of the strategy, just start pumping it and paying it down anyway. And if they're you got you know eighty grand a year spare that they're not living on, you know within five years that debt's gone anyway, so they're retiring it uh, with. Uh, aggression and cash flow strategy. But if it got to the point where their 46-year-old got that 800 grand debt on the investment property, what I would imagine would be as a natural consequence of buying property or buying any assets with debt, at some point when we review our portfolio against our current situation and circumstances, when it comes to age 55, we just come up for air and say, okay, we're doing some planning over the next few years what does the property look like? Are we happy with the asset? Are we happy with that? If the question is, well, the property, we think it's got the growth. We think it's had the growth that it's going to have. It needs some maintenance. The tenants haven't been ideal for whatever reason. We think it's actually time that we sell that asset. Now, if that means we sell that asset, well, we know that there's 400 grand of equity and I'm talking back to Craig's situation, as the course of life proceeds and their personal situation and the actual asset itself, it might mean we'll sell that property, pay off the debt, and we're happy to take that 400 grand now and just put it into super or buy a $400,000 other investment property with cash, maybe in a regional area. So, the debt retiring has just been an organic part of reviewing your portfolio, ongoing. Mm. Like I don't think there is a, a binary yes or no must retire debt. Like there's no there's no that I know of rule in life that you have to not have debt at any certain age.
2: No, that's right. And and without we've got Scott and Craig, are <laughs> we going on? But for Craig, like I I wouldn't be selling a one point two mil asset and buying a four hundred k asset with the proceeds. Oh, I just Generally speaking, your 1.2 mil will always outperform a 400K property. But I think in, in Scott's case, and, and what maybe we disagree on this, which is great, mm. surely, and my son uses surely as an opening word and it annoys me, <laughs> surely you would pay down your shares first before your property because the property is generating cash flow each month, whereas your share loans will... Your dividends will not be covering the share loans. Is that a fair assessment?
1: No, because you just have um, a cash kitty buffer, cash account. Yeah, but
2: what if you that, haven't?
1: Well, you haven't. You you probably haven't looked forward enough in your planning. Okay, and- but even
2: that aside, even if you do have a buffer, you know that the property has a a cash flow assigned to it every month.
1: Yeah, but why couldn't you get a managed fund and set up a portfolio that throughout the year there's always distributions yeah so you're saying like, it could be managed fund not shared. oh uh, yeah yeah absolutely yeah. like and this is the problem that you people <laughs> <laughs> who pay the bills people, no no you no you john pigeon but and me. Or you like <laughs> yeah so this is the problem You've jumped. This is the problem, right now. You are the problem. No, Scott's the problem. No, no. You said I wouldn't sell a one point two million dollar property to buy a four hundred thousand dollar property. You're going to go back to that. No, no. Because the one point two will perform better. You have not. You have neglected, rather. You have neglected the personal circumstance about what they want. They might not want to carry any debt anymore. They might not want to have any debt. They might want to just go We're sick of being a landlord. I had a client help them retire. When I met with them, they had two investment properties. And this is kind of in terms of retiring debt, this is kind of the practical approach that we used. One client had A property in Queensland, it was pretty much underwater. And by that, the value of the property was worth less than the debt owed Mm
2: -hmm.
1: on that property or the debt owing. So, each year, like, and they were in their 50s, I'm like, well, that thing's just hanging in there forevermore, amen. The minute you sell that, you're going to have to cough up 80 grand to the bank. So, that one's on the burner. Yeah. You shouldn't have bought it. You know you shouldn't have buy it. And then you just review each year. Like, as soon as that property probably equals the exact amount of the debt, let me tell you, that debt would have been retired. Yeah,
2: no, absolutely. <laughs>
1: but the other, the other clients, they had two investment properties. And over the course of my relationship with them uh, for eight years, when I met them, had the investment properties, had some managed funds, had super, they were to the point that being a landlord, is annoying. Even though we've got a real estate agent, we just want to spend time with the grandkids. We've done well. We're ready now just to sell the properties, take the profit, get rid of the debt, put the money into super. We're retiring in four years and life's simple. Yeah. So, and and this is great entertainment and fodder. (laughs) uh, There's a key word you
2: use right at the start of that. It's might. They might like debt. They might not like debt. They might need to assess their property and, and- Yeah, exchange yeah. it for another, et cetera. They might so want a clarity S- call.
1: Scott, what is your approach to retiring debt? Well, mine is assess it year on year or whenever you review your assets and your overall plan and you make a judgment call each year. It might be fine for a couple of, couple of years. Some things might change and then add an annual review with your advisor or whatnot. It could be, yeah, you know what? I think- I think probably over the next five years, we need to wrap that property up or, you know, deleverage for those shared portfolios. So, we'll get to a tipping point where we then turn in to say, okay, I think in the medium term, we do need to get rid of that asset. Or, John, uh, it could be a climate that the governments have legislated that uh, interest-only investment property rates are going up 2% overnight or something weird like that. So, there is no one answer. No. Which
2: makes it interesting.
1: Gosh. Right. Um, I feel like I've, I've talked a lot and I apologise.
2: Uh, Melissa, tips for country kids moving to the city to study. You're one of them. Yes, what did I you was look? back in 17. Tips for me, my 17-year-old self. Well, things have moved on since 1990-something. Um, look, eyes wide open, I think you might not have had – your your child might not have had much city exposure. So don't go and get ripped off. Don't um, put your wallet in your hands. Keep it in your pocket under lock and key. Just just understand that there's a lot more people around and, and a lot more things can happen and the, the variables increase, don't they? That's my first tip. Absolutely, yeah. And that was the first tip that I got as well um, but – Get out there and explore things to meet new people is probably my second tip. Neither of those have really got too much to do with money as such. Um, And then the third one is have some fun. And this is sort of big daddy speaking here. Encourage (laughs) your children when they're away into the city for, for study, not to always come home, not to always come home when it gets hard, not to come home on weekends too often, just... Soak up the atmosphere and and do it hard for a couple of years if you're homesick because it's going to serve you well
1: for for the next 20 years. Mm. Wild. You got anything? Yeah, I made seven points. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which we haven't got time for. Ah, we've got time. One, research the area. Before moving, research the neighborhood or area you'd like to be living This will help you understand the local culture, public transportation, options, and the availability of services and amenities. Number two, make a budget. Living in the city can be more expensive than living in a rural area. Make a budget and stick to it to ensure that you can afford your new lifestyle. Three, get involved in campus life. Join clubs and organizations on campus that can help you meet new people and make new friends. Because I think a lot of it, John, is that you got to make some friends and have a good network and even join Facebook groups if you can before you go. Number four, learn to navigate public transportation. Public transport can be a great way to get around, but it can be overwhelming if you're not used to it. Take some time to learn different routes and schedules and consider to bypass um, to save some money. Don't know if that's too legit. Um, be open-minded. Moving from a rural area to a city can be a big change and it can take time to adjust be open-minded, try new things as you may discover that you enjoy aspects of city life that you never expected. Six, and you said this, John, maintain the connection with your home. Don't forget your roots. You can stay connected with your family and friends by calling, video call, or even visiting them, but don't run home you know, every minute. And number seven, find a community. Look for people who share similar interests and values. It could be a sports team, a club, a church this will give you a sense of belonging to help you feel less isolated. Wow,
2: that's the most preparation you've ever done for a question in these five years of existence. It helps when you have the questions set up days in advance and your co-host gets it with 30 seconds to commence.
1: No, I prepped this this morning. As soon as you got the email, I've had the same time, but spoiler alert, I use the OpenAI Chat GPT. Oh, Google. <laughs> Google search got your result. No, it wasn't Google. Have you heard of the OpenAI? No. Okay. We'll cover that later. Uh, Last question and we'll get the heck out of here. Annunziata. last question. How can you plan the financial, including super hit that you'll take when you'll choose to go to part-time to look after young children? Look, this deserves an episode of its own and we will swing back around uh, and I've got something planned around this just to keep visiting it. But I think, you know, if the whole thing is, You've answered the question, how can you plan? Well, if you've got a plan, you're going to be ahead of the eight ball or the curve or whatever the, I don't even know what the saying is. Now, if you know that you want to go down to part-time and look after young kids because you want to start a family and you have time before you do that, like we talked with Craig, can you start living that type of lean, agile cash flow now before it actually happens and planning for that. I think that's number one. I did an episode at the end of last year, and it probably could be a good place to start uh, around single or low income households, or if you're a single person and you've only got one income. With your planning, you just have to be hyper-vigilant with your budget and your spending because if you're down to part-time work, it actually means you've got less money coming in each week, each month, each year. So, I would really start and to get around that plan word. Can you start to adjust your uh, food budget, for example, and see if you can do meal planning now before you take the hit part-time? Start to look at, uh, are there any leave entitlements, whether it is a maternity leave or you are wanting to actually, you've been back to work and you want to say, hey, I want to be a, part-time dad or a part-time mum now. So, it could be going back. But, you know, assuming that there is a second person in the, in the relationship, chat with them, make sure they're on the same page. Because I reckon, John, like the amount of stuff that we're getting with comments, if your partner is not on the same page, what if they've got an expectation that you continue working? Mm. Look, in terms of the super, if you've got my book, I want you to go to page 299. Uh, And there's some ways to optimize your super for lower income earners. And it may mean you might become a lower income earner going part-time. And it's the the government co-contribution. And if you don't have the copy of the book, uh, you can just Google co-contribution ATO. The ATO website, it's in everyday language. Uh, So that's you putting some money in and the government will match it, 50 cents for every dollar that you put in, up to $500. The spouse contribution, if you do have a spouse. Uh, they can put up to $3,000 into your account. They'll receive a tax offset of $540. And there are thresholds um, for incomes and all that. And then the last one, which I think is the best kept secret in the world uh, of superannuation is the superannuation splitting. So, you can split up to 85% of your contributions to your spouse or partner's super balance. So, if someone's having some time off work for a year or so, you can uh, speak to your super fund and put some of the working partners super into the non-working partners super uh, during that stage. That will keep your super humming along.
2: No, you've covered it all there. Uh, one thing I would say in that time, it's a good point you raised about uh, is it a single parent or a couple there because that there's some organic stress put on single parents to to feel as though they're, they're not moving forward through that period and, and they are solely responsible for the family. So yeah, just uh, you're doing a great job that you're focusing on Uh, bringing a child into the world at that time so that's providing wealth for you not in a financial sense but in a a life sense right yeah so that may mean that your super doesn't do anything through that period that's okay it's a short time period a, a short term to be able to then readdress address it once you get back to work
1: yeah. And I've always said, have a strategy, however small. Uh, and it's hygiene factor that during this time and leading up to it, maybe if you've got a credit card or a personal loan or a car loan or something that's outstanding, can you make it a goal to do any cleaning up of that stuff before you take the uh, the foot off the income and full-time pedal? Uh, but I mean, you'll be fine. It's just planning, get support from family, friends, and don't do it alone. Mm, I think- yeah the fact that you're asking you're going to be a lot better than someone who just does it without a spending plan, with debt still and you know at least doing this stuff, you might even decide that you will build an emergency fund first before you do it. John, we might leave it there uh, before we go. Can you tell us about the webinar that you've got coming up? Uh, it's a live webinar on Monday, the 27th of February at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. So that's 6 p.m. in Queensland, 7 p.m. the rest of the East Coast, um, probably 5 p.m. and a little bit earlier across the rest of Australia. Talk to us and we'll put a link in the show notes, but you're doing a My Millennial Property webinar, how to buy your first investment property. So what are you going to cover in that webinar, John? Yes, good question. So uh,
2: we'll we'll talk about a number of things. So the the basics, of foundations that I use, and then expand from there. So how to how to recruit a strong team of people. I'll go through my eight point strategy that I deal with clients uh, with in in real detail. Um, we'll talk about a long term wealth plan. So thinking about what might be happening after we purchase this first or next property. Um, the no-goes or the not-tos, so don't do this. Uh, there'll be a list of those. Uh, finance structures and, and getting that right the first time, because that can derail the plans to begin with. Um, cash versus equity and how how to navigate your way through that. And then a general Q&A at the end, which will round everything out. So pretty excited about this one, Galen.
1: And there's no cost uh, for people just to jump in and, and learn
2: more? No cost, no. The, the only cost I, I might... Sell a few things at the end,
1: so the cost. Well, the only cost is their time. Correct. So if you want to, yeah. you know, and you might be a few months or years away from buying an investment property, and you've always wanted to buy one. Yeah. You know, in these times, this is about learning and getting involved. I'm sure there'll be time for questions. How long will it go for? A couple of hours? Yeah,
2: I'm thinking 90 minutes minimum, but
1: then depending on Q and A, yeah, it could be up to two hours. Yeah. So if you do want to buy your first investment property or you know someone who does want to buy their first investment property. We'll put a link in the show note to John's uh, webinar that's happening on February the 27th. And yeah, I'm sure you'll be in great hands. Sounds good. All right, friends. Thanks for listening this week. We'll talk to you soon.